Welcome to Napa Broadcasting. Once again, as we enjoy doing every year, it's time to feature this year's Napa Valley Writers Conference. The conference returned last year, and this year it's back with more vibrancy than ever before. It's always a great joy to speak with some of the writers participating, and this year is no exception, as we're joined by poet Carl Phillips and poet and prose master Crystal Wilkinson. I began our conversations this year with Carl Phillips. He's an acclaimed poet and professor a literary luminary in his own right, with 15 books, including the Pulitzer Prize-winning collection, Then the War. His first book, In the Blood, was a winner of the 1992 Samuel French Morse Poetry Prize, and his literary career has been adorned with recognition ever since. His work extends beyond poetry, with esteemed prose books as well. Carl Phillips was educated at Harvard and Boston University and currently sharing his experience in poetry and translation at Washington University in St. Louis. He has also contributed to the wider literary community as the Chancellor of the Academy of the American Poets from 2006 to 2012. And he begins by telling us why he thinks the conference is so important. There's something about the intimacy of this program. It's smaller than a lot of a lot of the summer conferences that I think allows people very quickly to become a community and to engage with each other and be vulnerable and trusting and workshop. And I also like the unique aspect, at least for the poetry workshops, that it's generative. So they're writing new work every single day. So there's, there's something about getting that momentum that mm-hmm. so far they seem to find exciting. Talk about your work and, 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 and a little bit about how it's evolved and, and the generative nature of, of the work that you do. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I guess <laughs> I think it's evolved in the sense of I feel as if I have only a handful of themes, um, but they're large themes. I used to worry that I wouldn't have enough to write about. But when one of your themes is love or morality or death or sex, um, those are themes that you can continue to keep mining for. for And, and also our experiences change. So you know, what I thought of love at you know, 29 is different from 64. And uh, so I think it's, I think, I like to think the work has deepened with my own experiences. And, and maybe it's, it's become formally more adventurous, you know, you, mm-hmm. you get bored with how you've been doing something. So you right. sort of break the model and change it. Talk about the themes and, and how those themes have really f- become the focus of your work. I mean, there are, as you say, a, a selection of themes mm-hmm. that you come back to. Why those, and, and, and how did they evolve to be the centerpiece of, of the stuff that you do? Um, I think it, I actually think it was, it was a moment, I majored in Greek and Latin, and in college I studied Greek tragedy, and I started noticing that what they all have in common, those plays, is there's a conflict between how people how society tells people to behave and how people actually do behave. And I suddenly realized that this resonated with my own experience first as a biracial person. I've spent my whole life being told that this is what blackness is or I'm not, I'm not, I'm speaking in some white way or something like that. So this idea that people have expectations of how I should be. And then once I came out as a gay man, um, I grew up, as many people in my age did, thinking that marriage is between a man and a woman, or this is what normal is. And then you realize that who you are is not fitting what society says you are. So I think my poems always live in that space of 
tension between expectation and and what we choose and it expands into things like fidelity and relationships you know wanting to be loyal to somebody but the body doesn't recognize that in the same way we still have desires and so how do you straddle those two things in the years you've been doing it certainly the the public sense of identity has grown and changed mm-hmm. and, and shifted and expectations of what people will say and, and, and how they see these things has changed. Talk about how you've been, been careful to reflect that in your work, to, to keep it contemporary, really. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it, I feel like I only just write the poems I can write. And, mm-hmm. and when I first started out, I didn't start out to be someone who was a spokesperson for, say, queer writers. I just thought... It wasn't until I first stood up and started reading my poems in public and I realized I don't think everyone thinks about things the way I do. And I hadn't realized that. Um, and, and, uh, and now there's a lot more space for, for those differences of identity. Um, and, but I think I just spoke from them just by being myself. I wasn't trying to be part of that. And I hear these days the young writers think of me as a legacy identity poet, you know, where I was somehow making a path, but I wasn't planning to make a path. And do you feel, though, that, that now you have to constantly break new ground or, or push the, the limits of what you're doing because of that? Because th- there is this new generation of younger poets and because you don't want to be thought of as just the legacy <laughs> guy. Yeah, I, th- well, I think any artist of any kind of genre... Um, the point is to keep surprising yourself. And I think that's what's easy is to become successful and stay within that groove and of what you know will be popular. But to me, the most exciting musicians, say, are ones who are ones like Joni Mitchell, where they evolve constantly, regardless of what the audience's expectations are. But I think that's a hard thing to do, to keep surprising yourself, but know that some readers are going to say, oh, I, I missed the Carl of 10 books ago or something. Right. I mean, it is one of the, particularly with respect to art that is popular, it's one of the things that, that I suppose artists always worry about, this sense of, well, you know, his early work was mm-hmm. better. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing probably worse than hearing that. Right. But I tell my students it's a bit like, um, it's like seeing old pictures of yourself and saying, you know, I was pretty good looking at 20. And, but I don't disavow that person, nor do I disavow who I am now. I think, well, each one I had to go through to get to where I am. So, so. And you've yeah. written prose also. Talk about that. Well, yeah, I, I don't like writing prose. Um, but so the first couple of books of prose were just assembled lectures and talks I had mm-hmm. given and someone suggested I collect them. And then this most recent book, um, My Trade is Mystery, was an actual commission book that Yale University Press suggested I should write sort of a book that consolidated my wisdom about poetry or something in an accessible way. So that was one where I actually had to plan it out. And But, but my students helped me a lot with that because they have been asking questions about what about ambition or what what is a poetic practice? And so I ended up having those be the titles of chapters. And Talk about poetry today, how you think it is perceived and how you would like the public to perceive it maybe differently or at least ex- in an expansive way. Um, well, 
I guess, I, I mean, I think it's, I don't know how it's perceived. I, I think some, I think many people think poetry is a difficult puzzle that you have to be specially trained, understand, or it's not accessible. Um, I think there should be room for all kinds of poetry. And so some poets are more easily, you can enter the poem, you leave, and you don't wonder what the poem is about. But other poets, as far back as, say, Emily Dickinson, you, it's, you can read them for decades and never really know exactly what they're saying, but you feel something. And so I guess I wish that people would, people who are approaching poetry from outside of it would say, um, you know, it's okay not to get everything, but just to sort of have an encounter with something. Not to be afraid of it in yeah. some ways. Yeah, it's kind of how I feel about abstract art when I'm in a museum and I don't, I haven't studied art. So sometimes I see a canvas and I don't know what it, what it's meant to be, but I can feel something from it and revisit the painting some other time. That seems okay. It's okay to be a little lost. <laughs> Always. Yeah. Talk about young people. I mean, at, at a conference like, like this or your students at, mm-hmm. at, at Washington University, talk about how, what you see in terms of how young people are relating to poetry today. Well, I think, and I don't know if this is just for today, but, but I think people do see it as a, especially with spoken word poetry and that sort of thing, it's very much a vehicle for expressing a lot of frustration and rage and confusion as, you know, we have a lot of crises in our society these days. So it's that, it's cathartic. And um, and I think, I think you know, we all, have a, we all have something we feel inside and how we choose to express it could be through picking up a guitar or a paintbrush. Poetry is just another one of those vehicles in many ways this a lot of the spoken word poetry today is sometimes mixed with music Mm -hmm. talk a little about how you feel about that and and what you've seen in terms of the positive side of that i well i think it's great i think i think everything should count as poetry and um and mixing of genres having a band while play something while you're reading seems i i don't do that myself but I've been to that kind of a reading or performance, and I I think it's just another way of, it's like mixed media in some way. Talk a little bit about the performance aspect of it. I mean, if you're doing a reading Mm -hmm. somewhere, unlike prose sometimes, it it is a performance that Mm. that you're engaged in, which gives it a a different kind of a spin. Talk about that. Yeah, it is. I I mean, I guess it's a performance. I'm very afraid to read in public, and so... um, so I don't think of it as a performance as more just something. Did you have to do something? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I'm always glad after I've done it. I feel as if my fear somehow seems to, I gather from people who attend the readings, they seem to think these were moving readings, and I realize it was my fear that was moving it. It's not because I was able to stage it. But I also think that it's all performance in the sense of when I'm, when I'm teaching, that's a performance. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm putting on a role as a leader and as someone who knows has more experience anyway than other people in the room but that doesn't mean I don't have all these other insecurities but that doesn't get brought up to the fore so it's it's kind of an act I suppose and finally what are the themes that have risen to the top for you lately what are the things that are top of mind right now probably um I know I mentioned mortality before but that's probably that's probably a large part of it in part because of uh a dog I'd had for a long time that I had to put down. And um, I know some people would say it's just a dog, but um, 
so that's it's been a few months of that and sort of living in that space and and a, a friend who died at what now seems to me fairly young 71 um and so so it's made me reflect on that more but it's not like i've never thought about death but it's different when it's something that actually touches you so carl phillips i thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us thanks for having me thank, thank you. you jeff And next, it's my honor to be joined by Crystal Wilkinson. Crystal is the Poet Laureate of Kentucky, but she's not just a poet. She's a master of multiple literary form. She is the award-winning author of Perfect Black, a collection of poems, and is also the author of three works of fiction. Her work has been recognized with multiple awards, and her writings are a blend of short stories, poems, and essays. They've graced the pages of numerous journals and anthologies. Her upcoming culinary memoir, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghosts promises to be a lyrical journey through the hidden legacy of black Appalachians and a testament to the generations of women who have shaped her family's culinary heritage. Crystal teaches at the University of Kentucky, where she serves as a professor of English in the MFA Creative Writing Program, and this year she is making her first appearance here at the Napa Valley Writers Conference. You've been here a couple of days now. Your reaction, your impressions of uh, the Napa Valley Writers Conference. What a wonderful experience. Um, my workshop is great. It's been great to get to know the, the other faculty and what a stellar staff uh, and advocates of the area, advocates of Napa. So it's, it's been great. You know, one of the things that over the years I've noticed about the Writers' Conference is that that it tends to specialize. There's the prose writers and the poetry writers and the fiction and nonfiction writers. You have uh, a foot in many, many camps. Talk about that. Yes, I'm I'm here teaching fiction, uh, and I find myself always peeping, like I'm peeping over the wall, trying to see what the poets are doing, uh, trying to see what the other prose writers are doing. yeah, I find myself living in a, a world of hybridity for for me as a writer. I, a couple of years ago, I came upon this notion that my poet self and my nonfiction self and my fiction self did not live in separate places, that they are all one writer. And so it, it really affected my process, and I've been sort of writing through that without fear since then. Beyond affecting the process, talk about how it impacts the work and how your work in one area feeds into the other and and really the synergy that comes out of that. Yeah, I mean, I really think that poetry is probably the base for me. Um, And um, having an an exactitude with language, um, a precision with language, uh, lyricism, I think, plays into both the way that I write and the way that I teach and, of course, plays into the way that I grew up. You know, I come, I'm from an oral culture, being both African-American and Appalachian are both storytelling cultures. And um, the flair for storytelling, I think, um, affects my work. Um, and even though I'm, of course, trained in teaching, I think it also... Um, makes me accessible as a teacher. Talk about how it impacts your teaching and how you you convey it to the students. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, Emily Dickinson talked about telling it slant. Like, I I think I teach in a slant way that I, we will have, um, you know, idea of what the craft elements are and talk about them 
But I also will use a lot of metaphors. And, you know, like today I kept talking about the clothesline and everybody's head sort of turned like the clothesline. But by the end of our session, they understood that I'm talking about, you know, a through line or storytelling um, or storyline in a work of fiction and how the scenes are hung on that clothesline with the clothespins. So I could have, you know, went into my jargon my literary jargon and, you know, my creative writing workshop jargon. But using that metaphor um, was a way for them to understand. And they and there was a moment where they were like, ah, okay, now I get it. It's interesting in thinking about the metaphor that way. Not only is it literary, but there's also a feeling of a cinematic element to it almost in, in the storytelling in that way by hanging these things on the proverbial clothesline. Right, right. And the same with point of view. You know, I often use a metaphor of a bird with point of view. Like, where is the bird lighting? Is it inside a character for first person? Is it right outside the character for close third? Is it up in the sky and all-knowing for omniscient? Talk a little bit about your upbringing. Um, I was raised by my grandparents on a, tob- a tobacco farm um, in rural Kentucky, a little place called Indian Creek, Kentucky, um, sort of on a gravel road up a holler. My grandfather had a a third grade education. And like I said, he was a tobacco farmer. And my grandmother had an eighth grade education. And she was a domestic worker in clean houses. Um, But my grandmother had a yearning to be a teacher. Her parents You know, much of Appalachia is sort of insular and, you know, there's a fear of outsiders. So her parents wouldn't let her go off and and further her education because of the fear of what would happen to her out in the big wide world. So she got married and she never fulfilled that dream of being a teacher. But I think that she put that all on me. She poured all that into me. You know, I could read before I went to school and that all of that reading, um, sort of led to my love of of writing. And talk about that oral tradition, that storytelling tradition, and and how you saw it growing up. Well, my grandfather used to tell stories of his childhood um, that were often um, wild. Like he told ghost stories that were, you know, real, you know, you're talking about magical realism. These were real incidents in his life. Like he told the story of, um, having an aunt die and the aunt appeared at his at his foot at the foot of his bed and uh, that experience and then he told of of his father uh, being in the war and that beaches were white as snow and that a mermaid came up a woman with a, a tail like a fish he didn't call her a mermaid and so that those stories um, informed me as a writer too and even though my grandfather couldn't write I mean he was third grade educated and you know he was a mathematician but he could not write and read but that oral storytelling and the way a story begins and ends um, was that definitely influenced me and talk a little bit about your uh, upcoming memoir praise song for kitchen kitchen ghosts well, Pray Song for the Kitchen Ghosts, I think, is um, is an, an homage, is paying homage to um, the generation of black cooks uh, in Appalachia. And it begins with um, Aggie of Color, 
who was born in uh, Virginia in 1795, uh, who became my furthest ancestor that I can trace. And she was brought to Kentucky as an enslaved woman. And it begins with her and ends with me. Um, And I, all all of those things and the way, the cooking ways were passed down. Um, And uh, so what I do is explore each each generation uh, through foodways. And of course, you know, there are not many records for enslaved people. So part, um, you talk about hybridity. I use the lyric essay form. I use uh, some fiction, like I took all the facts that I could find about Aggie of color who became Aggie Wilkinson. And then I sort of imagine parts of her life and then as we move through like my grandmother's mother there were enough records um, and enough stories personal stories and so it was a, a, a fascinating um, journey to go through all of these generations uh, about food and I certainly learned um, a lot through the research but I also learned a lot just from communing with those ancestors and um, realizing that much of what I feel um, in my bones and and how I present a meal as a gift to my family now didn't begin with me. Uh, It goes back to Aggie and even beyond. Talk a little bit about teaching writing to young people today. What the challenges are, what are the things that are exciting for you? Um, I think the ability that young people have to, uh, t- for new approaches, the innovation, I think, is really exciting. Um, they're willing to try new things, and the um, experimentation is, is what I see as, the, as most exciting. When something's fresh, and they're willing to, to take ch- risk with language, risk with stories. Um, and I guess the most challenging even though I see it changing some, is um, patience. I think that this generation, uh, I, the, the 30 years that I've taught fiction, I've seen it change from like where I would demand or, or command like a, 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 young, a new group coming into my class. We're going to turn in 30 pages this, sem- this semester. You know, you're going to write 30 pages of fiction. And now... It's, it's gotten less and less because the attention span is not there and the stories get shorter and shorter and shorter. So mm-hmm. with the MTV era and, uh, you TikTok. know, yeah, TikTok <laughs> and social else. media, they like the sound bites. And so we do a lot of flash fiction in those, in those uh, beginning classes. Short stories. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, I thank you so much for coming in and sharing with us. Crystal Wilkinson, thank you so much. Thank you.